Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Our text for our sermon is Matthew chapter 27, verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent him a message. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, she said, since I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Let's immediately address the white elephant in the room, for there have often been people who claim to have prophetic dreams, and I've been around people who think any time they have a dream, it means something important in their life. And Science has shown lots of times if you go to bed with something on your mind, it's not uncommon for you to dream about it. It's not even uncommon for your subconscious mind and through the dream to give you the solution to the problem. Those aren't prophetic dreams. Sometimes Christians wishing they had some gifts that God hasn't given them may want to make it seem like they have prophetic dreams, and they don't. Some cultures put bigger emphasis on dreams than we do in America, but there's no denying in Scripture there are prophetic dreams. When you look at the time span that Scripture covers and the amount of prophetic dreams mentioned, they're a lot rarer than we would like to think they are, but they do happen. And a perfect example of that is Joseph. And Pharaoh, when Pharaoh has that dream of the seven very overweight, very full cows, and then the seven very scrawny, sickly cows that Joseph's the only one to interpret, Pharaoh knew, even though he was not a believer, he knew there was something to that dream. We can say that about Pilate's wife today. She was able to connect those dots and say something big is going on. Now, we are covering the sermon theme, Rays of Divine Glory, as seen in Christ's Passion. Because, as I've said before, Christ hides his deity. For no man can see the glory of the Lord in all of its brightness and live. And yet, even in the Passion, we get rays or glimpses of that glory. So as we look at the dream of Pilate's wife today, we have the theme, Rays of Divine Glory as Seen in Christ's Passion Through Pilate's Wife. Now, Pilate would have been awoken early that morning. Remember, the Sanhedrin is having a trial, and they've tried, they want to get Jesus all convicted and done for before the crowds, especially those who had cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Sunday morning, wake up. So Pilate's woke up or is woken uh, is awoken early that morning, and when he interviews Jesus to find out what's going on, he ultimately tells them, "This is a religious thing with you guys. This doesn't involve the government, and and I you take him and deal with it." Oh, but suddenly the the Sanhedrin themselves, who had never been happy with Caesar's rule over them, become very devout, loyal citizens, as if Jesus was preaching a rebellion. Ultimately, Pilate recognizes they're not letting him out of this. Ah, but he finds his escape hatch. Pilate's a good politician. You're a Galilean. That puts you in Herod's jurisdiction. Herod happens to be here to celebrate the Passover and everything. I'll send you to him. Uh Uh-oh, Herod has sent him back. Even says, I find no basis for a charge against this man, and neither does Herod, for he sent him back for me. But boy, they won't let him go, will they? Pilate's a pretty good politician. He comes up with another idea. Barabbas, who is truly guilty of insurrection, Pilate, during this week, had the custom of releasing 
one prisoner. Now, it's kind of like if you take something really bad and compare it to something really good, it makes the really bad look bad and the really good look good. So who do you want me to release? I'm just going to give you Barabbas. We obviously know there's other men in prison because there's going to be two more men crucified with Jesus that day. Or Jesus. He gives them one of those two options. The really bad, the clearly guilty, the one who's actually guilty of insurrection, or this Jesus who's innocent. Brilliant political maneuver. They should have seen, yeah, this guy's innocent. Oh, no. Oh, no, they're not going to go for that. And it's in the meantime that he receives that message. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. Now, Pilate's wife probably originally spoke this in, in Latin because they were Roman. But the Greek word that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write is, to, to write is very, well, very aptly translated with righteous. Let me explain. I have here a tool I use when I'm working with wood. I'm not going to name the tool because Pilate's wife's not named, and I'll explain that here in a minute. This gives me a standard. If I'm making cuts that need to be three inches, I can even adjust this so that I have precisely three inches and every cut will line up when I hold this up against that. So this is quite a good tool for measuring. It makes a good standard. It also makes a good standard for a straight edge. I've always been very careful where I set this so it doesn't get dings or nicks in it. Also, I can use it as a 90 degree angle. Oh, but it doesn't stop there. If I'm making picture frames, I can use it as a 45 degree angle as well. And last but not least, and I have used it as this too, there is a level bubble on it that I can use, for example, one time when making an end table. This is a standard. It lets me know and it makes sure I can do things right every time. When Pilate's wife calls Jesus that righteous man, she is saying there is a standard that he lives up to, and that standard is righteousness. Now, that standard of righteousness, that means for you and I who are believers, holiness. It means purity. It means perfect. She isn't just saying he's innocent. He's so innocent that he can actually be a standard of innocence, of righteousness, just as there was a tool that was used to make sure this fit the standard, and then this could be a standard for me. Jesus is so righteous, he fits the standard. And that's a comfort for you and I, because Jesus never sinned. He is perfectly righteous, perfectly innocent, perfectly holy. Let me give you another example of why this is a comfort for you and I, and I'll tie it all in for us. If two criminals were guilty of such a heinous act of murder that everybody could agree they deserve the death penalty, and yet one of them says to the judge, Your Honor, don't put my friend to death here, I'll take his place, the judge would laugh at him and say, You don't understand, you have to die yourself for your own crimes. We're not going to raise you up and make you die for him. That's not how it works. If somebody else were to slip in who had committed the crime, they might be able to be their substitute. Jesus is perfectly righteous. So righteous, he himself is the standard. You and I know it's because he's the God-man. And so he can be our substitute because he has no sin. And this is why he's going to the cross. You and I, it's like we have been bent because we find out that even our thoughts condemn us. Just thinking the sinful thought. But Jesus is able to straighten us out with his blood. It's why he's going to the cross. He's able to fill in the nicks, 
bend us back so that we make the 90 or the 45 degree angle. In other words, Jesus being perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, means he can be our substitute, means his blood can wash us clean, and if we want to have a relationship with God, we have to be perfectly righteous. But we're not. And so we're credited with Christ's active obedience, the fact that God, the God-man, never once even thought a sinful thought. You're credited with it, and his being perfect like that means he can be your substitute and that his blood can straighten you out and cleanse you. So, rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion through Pilate's wife, revealing Christ's righteousness for you and I. But let's admit it, there's a warning here. And let's consider the source. Nothing in history has done more to elevate women to the status God intended for them to have than scriptures. In fact, from the get-go, if you read the creation account, you see that God went out of his way for Adam to appreciate the corresponding helper that God was going to make for him. So that even making Adam see he didn't have that, so he would ache for it. And yet, when you look at many religions and when you look at most cultures, women are viewed as doormats. Oftentimes they're viewed as nothing more than objects of sexual desire and, and then they're often viewed as being too emotional and dumb to be able to deal with anything else. Women had more rights than slaves if they were Roman citizens because they couldn't be crucified. But in the Roman Empire, women were not thought of as very highly. They were objects of sexual passion and otherwise they were kind of doormats. This is such the case that Pilate's wife couldn't even come into the courtroom and say, whoa, whoa, stop, stop, warning, warning, danger, no. She has to send a message because she does not have the legal right to interfere with this court trial. In fact, I think that's why the scripture never even names her because scripture even names prostitutes who come to believe. It seems that it's trying to emphasize to us that while God chose her to give the warning to the Gentiles, he'd already warned the Jews with his own lips, but even to the Gentiles to have a warning from one who's also a Gentile, while God chose her and she gets this special glory whether she realizes it or not, legally she wouldn't be appreciated for it. So she's not even named and it brings out that while God shows his glory, it's a very hidden glory. We're never told the agony she suffers in the dream. It seems very clear that in her dream she sees this righteous man and that he is being put through a kangaroo court and it definitely gives her agony. But you and I aren't told exactly what that is. Remember that because when a brother or sister in Christ loves you enough to come and actually warn you as she warns her husband, whoa, this is not going to be good for you in your political career. When a brother or sister in Christ comes and warns you, you are falling into sin. You can drive the Holy Spirit out of your heart. Oftentimes we want to immediately say, how dare you? How dare you talk to me? You're not so good. But think about the agony they may have suffered. Maybe have lost sleep because you've sinned against them or because they see you embracing a sin they want to warn you about. But ultimately, what's the warning that she gives to her husband because she is concerned for him? have nothing to do with that righteous man. Not just don't declare him guilty because he's righteous. Don't, don't declare him 
innocent either. Get away from this. When I was a teenager, I remember coming to my dad a few times with concerns with troubles my teenage friends were having. And there were a few times, not all the time, there were a few times my dad in his wisdom told me, get away from that. That's none of your business. Get your nose out of that. My dad's point was, you may be concerned for your friend, but you're in a no-win situation. Even in your concern for your friend, you're going to end up in trouble. A couple of times my dad wasn't there to warn me about that, and I actually got to see how you're in a no-win situation. Well, that's where Pilate is at, and his wife is warning him. If you do, if you do declare him innocent, which, you know, which would be preferable, you're going to be in trouble because this, the, the, the Sanhedrin's rising up the crowd against you, arousing the crowd against you. But if you declare him guilty, he is innocent, and it's not going to go well. In fact, Pilate goes down in history as being a coward, leads and is bullied into one of the worst kangaroo courts, if not the worst in history. So there's a warning she gives to him. But there's a warning you and I also can get in all of this as well. See, God doesn't plan for us to sin. God is not the author of sin or evil. But God, knowing all things, makes plans to use our sin for the good of the invisible church of all believers. And a perfect example of what I'm talking about is Christ's passion. You see, the devil thought he was getting Christ out of the way. This is made clear in many places in Scripture. And yet, God lets the devil have at it. The devil doesn't even realize he is literally weaving his own noose. So that he thinks he's getting the Savior murdered and out of his way, and lo and behold, the Savior voluntarily going to that cross and dying for us is the way the devil's defeated. The name Satan, Satanos, literally means accuser. This is one of the things the devil does. He walks up to the Lord and says, ha, 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 you, you, God's beloved child, doesn't fit up to the standard. He accuses you. I've got their sins. God says, I don't know what you're talking about. I see my son's blood. I see my son there, his righteousness. But there's also a warning here that God is allowing Pilate an exit out of this. Certainly the Gentiles are going to be involved in the murder of Christ. God knows that. And God knows Pilate isn't going to take the exit. But through Pilate's wife, he says, pump the brakes, Pilate. You can be free of this. You don't have to be involved in this. Just like Jesus did with Judas. Jesus gave, Jesus gave Judas grace. He warned him along the way. And even the night that Judas betrays him, he says, what you're about to do, do quickly. All along, God is inviting Judas to trust in the Lord and to pump the brakes, but he doesn't take it. God warns us of our sin. And lots of times he sends a brother or sister in Christ into our lives to say, you're heading headfirst into something that's going to snowball and turn into a mess. Pump the brakes. And so... Rays of divine glory is seen in Christ's passion through Pilate's wife. We see it's revealing Christ's uprightness, but also revealing a warning. It's not going to be good for you. You can get out of this. There's an exit. And sometimes when we give that warning to brothers and sisters in Christ, the exit may be confess your sins and have the blood of Christ poured upon it because nothing else is going to fix this. Obviously, before God, only the blood of Christ is going to work. But sometimes we get so wrapped up in a sin in this world that even our relationship with human beings, all we can do is say, I screwed up, I'm sorry, and I thank the Lord for forgiveness. Let's tie all this together. In that message, which I said, that righteous man, that one who lives up to the standard, 
There's a very subtle but very gentle invitation for Pilate, Pilate's wife, the Sanhedrin, and you and I. As I've already mentioned, Christ is so holy, so righteous, he's perfect, that he himself can become the standard. Now, we've got to be careful as Christians because too many Christians think the whole point of Christianity is what would Jesus do? If I live up to Christ's standard, but you can't live up to Christ's standard. So if we're known for our morality, and certainly we're going to have a morality because we love the Lord, but that's not the end all of Christianity. The end all is you fall short of the standard. Christ is the standard for you. And Christ, by being your standard, also is the forgiveness that makes you clean before the Lord. So there's an invitation. You're not righteous. You don't measure up to the standard, but Christ did. And there's the invitation to have him as your righteousness, as your savior. And that's really what we want to be known for. And so once again, as we have seen rays of divine glory in Christ's passion, we see that through Pilate's wife, revealing Christ's uprightness, revealing a warning, and revealing an invitation. Christ is your righteousness. Therefore, Christ is your Savior. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen.